Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. The Story of Burnt Njal Njal Saga Gunnar hét maður. Hann var frændi Unnar. Rannveig hét móður hans og var Sigfúrsdóttir Sigvarssonar. There was a man whose name was Gunnar. He was one of Unnas kinsmen and his mother's name was Rannveig. Gunnar's father was named Haumund. Gunnar dwelt at Lithand in the fleet life. He was a tall man in growth and a strong man, best skilled in arms of all men. He could cut or thrust or shoot if he chose as well with his left hand as with his right hand. And he smote so swiftly with his sword that three seemed to flash through the air at once. He was the best shot with a bow of all men and never missed his mark. He could leap more than his own height with all his war gear and as far backwards as forwards. He could swim like a seal, and there was no game in which it was any good for anyone to strive with him. And so it has been said that no man was his match. Hello, I'm Lane Green, the Johnson columnist at The Economist. In this year's Christmas issue, I've been writing about Icelandic, a language which has stayed remarkably stable over time, So much so, in fact, that Icelandic people today can read, with a slight squint and a bit of effort, the sagas that were written over eight centuries ago. Dr. Ruth Sanders is a professor emerita at Miami University of Ohio. Her expertise is in German studies, and she is the author of The Languages of Scandinavia, Seven Sisters of the North. She's joining me to discuss how and why Icelandic has stayed so true to its ancient roots. Ruth, it's said that most Icelandic people can still read their famous sagas, a sort of semi-historical, semi-mythical collection of Viking-era tales of conquest and valor and family feuds. Could you tell us a little bit about those sagas and how the fact that they were written in the vernacular language that everyone spoke has played into Icelandic's conservatism over time? Well, the sagas are certainly a great cultural achievement and one that one might not expect from such a small, isolated country as Iceland. And in fact, Iceland produced a lot more literary quality fiction and nonfiction in its early times than the other Scandinavian nations did. Tell us a little bit about how these would have been read uh, or or consumed at the time they were written and afterwards. Was this a highly literate society in which most people would have read them? 
I imagine copies of them would have been fairly scarce, or were these things that were frequently recited and memorized? The sagas were first oral literature, and they were not written down until several hundred years after we think they originated. I believe the first one was written down in 1170, and uh, so we can't be sure that there are absolutely correct transcriptions of what there was. In 1170, there was not a high rate of literacy in Iceland. However, there were plenty of people to make copies of manuscripts, and the young men who were training to do this would have gone to uh, probably Germany to, to train. So they wrote down the sagas as best they could in the Latin alphabet. It wasn't yet standardized at that time, so that later on, that's why the sagas were, the spelling and so forth was uh, normalized. I think that they were probably read aloud to people and told aloud to people much more often than individuals read them. And in fact, a couple of years ago when I was in Reykjavik, there was an exhibition at the uh, museum in Reykjavik of those saga manuscripts. And it's very interesting, the saga copiers wrote little notes in the margins about their work. They complained about the food, or they complained about how dark and cold it was in the scriptorium where they were writing, and complained about their poor pay. And I, as a reader of the 21st century, can only conclude that the people who were hiring them couldn't read, or else they would have been fired. So these things were left for history, scribbled in the margins of, of those sagas. But it was, a, it was definitely a status object for the upper classes to have their very own copy of one or more of the sagas or the family stories or the histories. Some of the sagas are, are stories like soap operas. Some of them might even be law books or collections of rules for society or things of that sort. There was a man whose name was Njall. He was the son of Thorger Gerling, the son of Thorolf. Njall's mother's name was Ausgerda. Njall dwelt at Bergthorsnotl in the Land Isles. Njall was wealthy in goods and handsome of face. No beard grew on his chin. He was so great a lawyer that this match was not to be found. Wise too he was and foreknowing and foresighted, of good counsel and ready to give it, and all that he advised men was sure to be the best for them to do. Gentle and generous, he unraveled every man's knotty points who came to see him about them. Let's put this in some context that might be familiar to our listeners of the wider European context in which most reading and writing would have been done in Latin instead of the vernacular. Icelandic was different in this regard. Well, that, of course, was the um, influence particularly of the Roman church, so that all church-related things were done in Latin. And, of course, on the continent, the kings and the church were pretty well co connected. In Iceland, there was never a king. The king would have been in Norway when Iceland belonged to Norway. And then afterwards, after Norway almost became a failed state because of the Black Plague in 1349, then uh, Norway and all of its possessions were owned by Denmark. But Iceland was pretty far away. By that time, the climate had changed, and we were out of the warm period and into the icy period, so that the contact between Denmark, Norway, and Iceland was down to a bare minimum. 
that's another reason why the language didn't receive a lot of influence from outside languages as Swedish and Norwegian and Danish did. The Latin church, when Iceland was Christianized, um, it did have a Latin-speaking clergy who were educated in Europe, but uh, the government was never was never conducted in, in Latin, probably because the king was just too far away. Þá kom að Hallvarður og tókst nú barðdagi mikill. Sáu þeir nú að formaður var öruggur. Now Gunnar leapt back to his own ship. And then Halvard came up. And now a great battle arose. They saw now that their leader was unflinching. And every man did as well as he could. Sometimes Gunnar smote with the sword. And sometimes he hurled the spear and many a man had his bane at his hand. Kolskeg backed him well. As for Kartli, he hastened in a ship to his brother Vantil, and thence they fought that day. After that, Kolskeg took a beaker full of mead and drank it off and went on fighting afterwards. And you mentioned Icelandic cousins, uh, Swedish and Danish and Norwegian. Over the centuries, those languages have simplified quite a bit. Anyone who's learned one of those, either as a native or as a foreign language, can find some of the grammar really quite straightforward and simple. Icelandic has kept a lot of the complexity of Old Norse. And I wonder if you could explain why those other languages simplified as a way of helping us understand why Icelandic is so unusual in its regard. Icelandic has kept all of its cases and its complicated verb endings and so forth, which are absent from Norwegian and Swedish and Danish. And I do think that one reason might be that um, Iceland was not part of the Hanseatic League. The Hanseatic League was an, at first informal and later official league of cities in Scandinavia and in the Baltic where there was free trade and there was a lot of cultural exchange so that they were isolated not only in the cold period when the ice kept the ships from coming through, but they didn't have that constant cultural exchange with the merchants of the Hanseatic League, whose language was Middle Low German. And that tended to simplify. It brought in a lot of foreign words and foreign phrases, expressions, and maybe even the structure. You know, you have two different kinds of language influence. You have the words and you have the structures. And Icelandic has in the end brought in a lot of words, although they have a language commission that tends to translate them into Icelandic roots rather than borrowing the word whole cloth. But the thing that people notice about Icelandic is all of the declensions. It looks a little, a little bit like Latin, and that's not the case with the other. So I, I do think that the low German influence has probably a lot to do with that. Gunnar had already wounded eight men and slain those twain. By that time, Gunnar had got two wounds, and all men said that he never once winced, either at wounds or death. Then Gunnar said to Hallgerda, Give me two locks of thy hair, and ye two, my mother and thou, twist them together into a bowstring for me. Does aught lie on it? she says. My life lies on it, he said, for they will never come to close quarters with me if I can keep them off with my bow. Well, she says, now I will call to thy mind that slap on the face which thou gavest me, and I care never a whit whether thou holdest out a long while or a short. 
og heyrði ég aldrei hvort þú verð þig lengur eða skemur. Everyone has something to boast of, says Gunnar, and I will ask thee no more for this. Well, let's fast forward a couple of centuries and talk about those institutions you mentioned, the sort of committees and the Icelandic Language Council. They they keep foreign words out of Icelandic. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? My Icelandic professor in graduate school used to tell us stories about the Icelandic Language Institute, which wasn't founded until the 20th century. An example that I can think of is the word Sputnik, which came into English from Russian. And we just took that word in and we took it to mean that satellite that the Russians had put up. And we didn't attempt to find an English equivalent for it. In Iceland, the word for Sputnik, as well as the word for telephone or telegraph or computer, would be worked on by these language committees until they found some Icelandic roots that would give the meaning without actually using a foreign word. And he would tell us that, for example, if something happened one day in a foreign country which required a new word that Icelandic didn't have, the language commission would stay up all night if necessary and search through their their word books and their etymological sources and find ways of expressing it in Icelandic and then call the newspaper editor in Reykjavik the next morning and tell him what is the approved word so that he can express this in Icelandic. So it was something they took rather seriously and it sounded almost comic the way my professor told it, how these groups of scholarly men would get together and stay up all night to figure out how we can say this, all to avoid using a foreign word in Icelandic. Skarpjöðum mælti, nú skulum við fara þegar í nótt, því að þeir spyrja að ég er hér. Now we shall set off at once, says Skarpjöðum, this very night, for if they learn that I am here, they will be more wary of themselves. I will fulfill thy counsel, says Högni. After that they took their weapons when all the men were in their beds. Högni takes down the bill, and it gave a sharp, ringing sound. Ranveig sprang up in great wrath and said, who touches the bill when I forbade everyone to lay hand on it? I mean, says Högni, to bring it to my father, that he may bear it with him to Valhalla, and have it with him when the warriors meet. Rather shalt thou now bear it, she answered, and avenge thy father, for the bill has spoken of one man's death or more. hepna Now, you're a historian of these things in the long term. Let's see if we can take a look at now and maybe into the next few years. Uh, Iceland is isolated geographically, but it's no longer possible to be isolated, of course, from the information economy. You have uh, people on mobile phones and on the Internet all the time now. And, for example, services like Siri, Apple's voice assistant on the iPhone, isn't available in Icelandic. Uh, Android does have an Icelandic interface for its Google Assistant, but Apple doesn't have it. Many of the things either aren't available in Icelandic or Icelanders prefer not to use them. They use the English interface instead. Looking forward, do you think that Icelandic's conservatism and purity can survive uh, this connectedness with the rest of the world? They do seem pretty serious about it, and by now they have almost a national stubbornness about it, that Icelandic is a special language and we're going to to keep this. And, of course, the use of English is almost a way of isolating themselves from Scandinavian influence, that that way they don't have to feel that one of the other Scandinavian countries is having influence on them. English is a way of keeping it a bit at arm's length. Uh, Danish is the second language of Iceland. Everyone studies Danish in school. This Danish is almost a lingua, a Scandinavian lingua franca. And, and so what that means for the future is, is really all 
is really very difficult to say. I think Icelanders are very comfortable being bilingual or trilingual, and because they do have such a, they have a very high percentage of literacy and, and have for a very long time, that it's just hard to think of them giving up their language. And it's true they can't be isolated in the way that they used to be because of the internet and telephones and, and televisions, but I don't think they're going to give up their native language. They're not being smothered by another nation or or having to give up their power in any way, and so it doesn't seem right now that Icelandic is endangered. Gerðu þeir flósi þá stór bál fyrir öllum dyrum. Tók þá kvennaliðið illa að þóla það er inni var. Then Flósi and his men made a great pile before each of the doors, and then the women folk who were inside began to weep and to wail. Njall spoke to them and said, Keep up your hearts, nor utter shrieks, for this is but a passing storm, and it will be long before ye have another such. And put your faith in God, and believe that he is so merciful that he will not let us burn both in this world and the next. Such words of comfort had he for them all, and others still more strong. Now the whole house began to blaze. Then Njall went to the door and said, Is Flossi so near that he can hear my voice? Flossi said that he could hear it. Wilt thou, said Njall, take an atonement from my sons, or allow any men to go out? I will not, answers Flossi, take any atonement from thy sons. And now our dealings shall come to an end once and for all. And I will not stir from this spot, Till they are all dead. But I will allow the women and children and housecarls to go out. Right. If not endangered, what about the influences that might come into the language? For example, besides technology, Iceland has now got a population of about 10 or 12 percent of the population is, is foreign born now. It wasn't that long ago that nearly all of the population of Iceland was descended from that settler group that you mentioned that came over in the ninth century. And now you have over 10 percent of the population from somewhere else in the world. Will that influence the language itself some way, either strip out some of that complexity or introduce new vocabulary that's not of Nordic roots or something like that? I think it depends on what happens to that population. Right now, they're brought in more or less as foreign workers, and they're not in positions of cultural influence. If they're planning to stay, they will try to become Icelandic and learn Icelandic. Um, something that struck me uh, when I was in Iceland several years ago is that there is one Catholic church in Reykjavik, and it has nine services a week. Eight of them are in Polish, and one of them is in English. None of them is in Icelandic. And so that right there, that speaks to a kind of separatism. So that was for the tourists and the Polish workers. The Polish workers are getting along very well with Icelanders, and temporary workers don't ever have an influence on the language. That tends to happen when a group uh, comes in that has some superior technology or military power or political influence in some way, not so much from ordinary immigrants. I mean, as the United States, for example, there have been some local influences from the many foreign languages spoken by immigrants to the United States, but it's hard to say that English has been steered off its otherwise expected course in any serious way by all of the many, many European immigrants or now South American immigrants who came to the United States. 
Uh, well, thank you very much, Ruth Sanders. Dr. Ruth Sanders, again, is a professor at Miami University of Ohio and the author of The Languages of Scandinavia, Seven Sisters of the North. And she and I have been talking about the Icelandic language. Thank you very much, Ruth. Thank you very much, Lee. You can read more about Icelandic in the Christmas issue, available on newsstands now or at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.